0: Hello again everybody, welcome back to another episode of Scope of Practice, a podcast from the Connecticut Certification Board. We enjoy talking about topics and happenings related to the substance use and mental health disorders prevention, treatment, and recovery field that are not otherwise often discussed, and we appreciate that you tune in to listen. There are certain phrases and idioms in our industry that are stated so often that their meaning is often lost, and in many cases serve as little more than a punchline. When we say multiple pathways of recovery or meeting people where they are, do we really mean it? Looking at it from my perspective, I'd say that a majority of times we don't. This field clearly has a pro-12-step bias to be sure. The pervasiveness of this is clear, with about 67% of treatment programs and 90% of residential facilities being 12-step based or requiring attendance. Many use it in their advertising in clear violation of their own 11 tradition. In what could only be described as borderline hypocritical, the courts often refer defendants to 12-step programs, while other courts determine that it violates their First Amendment rights if they object to the Judeo-Christian ideology. It is so pervasive, I read an article in a trade magazine where someone talked about doing strategic planning for an organization according to the 12 steps. The issue is not one of the fellowships themselves. They are fantastic options for for those who choose that pathway in seeking recovery, and countless individuals have benefited from them. They are free, readily available, and were not designed as treatment. As the field has tried to move forward from its early history as one of oral tradition to more evidence-based models, we still struggle to let those we serve determine their own journey. Those individuals for whom they are not a good fit we, for what we awfully uh, strongly encourage them to do, we refer to them non-compliant, not ready, or that they haven't hit rock bottom. This is a dangerous view for those who work in treatment, whose job is to meet the client where they are at, but tend to do exactly the opposite. Our guest today is journalist Maya Salibas. She is the author, most recently of Undoing Drugs: The Untold Story of Harm Reduction and the Future of Addiction, which is the first history of the movement. Aimed at focusing uh, drug policy on minimizing harms, not highs. Her previous New York Times bestseller, Unbroken Brain, a revolutionary new way of understanding addiction, wove together neuroscience and social science with her personal experience of heroin addiction. It won a 2018 Media Award from the National Institute of Drug Abuse. She is a contributing writer for the New York Times and has written for numerous other publications, including Time, Wired, L, The Nation, and Scientific American. Her 2006 book, Help at Any Cost, How the Troubled Teen Industry Cons Parents and Hurts Kids, was the first to expose the damage caused by tough love youth treatment and helped spur congressional hearings. She has also authored or co-authored five other books, including The Classic on Child Trauma, The Boy Who Was Raised as a Dog, with Dr. Bruce D. Perry. She Lives with Her Husband and Two Squeaky Cats, I Only Have One, in New York City. Good morning and welcome.
1: Thank you so much for having me.
0: Uh, I'd like to start with a quote from the editorial in uh, the New York Times, just just on March 11th, um, which is backed by data, but rarely put so succinctly. The omnipresence of religious addiction programs and the rarity of therapies that don't preach reliance on God is a burden for people with addiction. Can you fill in a little more about the realities of the system which support that statement?
1: Sure. So um, one of the things that... um, has been amazing to me. I myself went to 12-step based treatment because that was the only thing um, in 1988. Um, And I did the 12-step thing myself, um, went every day for um, at least five years. It might have been seven, but I'm going to say five to be conservative. Um, And anyway, I was really into it because I was told, this is the one true way. And then I began reading the scientific literature. And I found that there's many pathways to recovery and that also some of the things that are sort of basically taught as gospel are not actually true for everyone with addiction. And I was extremely lucky that it was helpful for me and that I was able to reject the unhelpful stuff. But, um, you know, I, I saw a lot of people for whom that was not true. And one of the things that sort of eventually began to make me move away from it was not a desire to use drugs, but the fact that we were in the midst of an AIDS crisis. And at that time, there was no effective treatment. And it was pretty much a death sentence. And I saw like brave gay men out there, like fighting for treatment. Whereas people in meetings would be like, well, some have to die so others can live and i'm like that's not okay like we should be out there trying to say because you know needle exchange <laughs> works it is quite obvious mm-hmm. why it would work um especially to anybody who's ever shot drugs because clean needles are more pleasant than dirty ones <laughs> on a very basic fundamental level right mm-hmm. um so um so anyway so that's that's a little you know sort of background on me but so when i went to treatment in 1988 I believe 99% of all treatment was 12 step. Like there was no, I I had been in a methadone program. Basically the counseling was go to N.A. Um, and I would be always like, why should I go there? They're not gonna let me speak. Um, like, you know, I just, anyway. Um, but so it was even the, like the therapeutic communities that um, had originally been based on Synanon that for a while actually had drinking privileges But they were originally based on forcing the 12 steps on people and confronting and humiliating them. But so even they had moved towards 12 step being dominant there. So pretty much you could not avoid it. And so every four or five years ago, four, sorry, every four or five years or so, I asked people, can you name me 10 treatment programs in the United States that do not use the 12 steps? Um, And nobody can ever do it. And I am a journalist in this area. I write for the New York Times. I'm quite known in this area. If I can't get people to find 10, you know, and then I I keep asking, you know, people who just came out of treatment, you know, what was the treatment like? And, you know, almost always, except if they've gone to one of the three that I know of, um, (laughs) the um, answer is, you know, we were taught that we should, you know, not drink, not use and go to meetings. Um, And, you know, sometimes it's worse than that because they were told like, oh, don't take, you know, they have opioid use disorder and they're like, oh, don't take that uh, methadone or buprenorphine because you're not really clean, Um, you know, and those two things for opioid addiction are the only things that we have that cut the death rate by 50% or more when we have a market that's completely flooded with fentanyls. And it works even despite the fentanyls. So the idea that you would be telling people to stop using a medication that only works as long as you use it, um, in the midst of that, like, I, that's just malpractice, basically. Um, so, but anyway, like, I do believe over the last 10 years or so, there really has been a move towards expanding treatment beyond this. And I also want to say, because I always get attacked every time I write about this subject for being anti-12 step or Mm -hmm. I don't know what I'm talking about. I went every day for five years. I knew Mm -hmm. what I'm talking about, Um, you know, um, and I'm not anti-12 step. I absolutely believe that people who voluntarily engage in a pathway that um, involves self-examination and trying to help others, that's a great thing. And, you know, uh, peer support is essential for many, many, many people's recovery and it's free and available and all of that. What I object to is paying for it. I object to treatment programs that basically the whole point of the program is to teach you the ideas of 12 step and to get you to start going to meetings. It is not, you know, they'll throw in the odd trauma group or something like that. But most of the thing is trying to get you to feel powerless, trying to get you to, you know, say I'm Maya, I'm an addict, like trying to again. And like, there's research on all of these elements. Like if, whether you say that word or not, if that isn't what matters to your recovery, it's whether you want to actually change your behavior because lots of people change their behavior without accepting that word. Um, and lots of people who do accept that word don't change their behavior.
0: Like you, I get accused of, of being anti-12 step because I offer pointed criticisms, not criticism of the fellowships, but pointed criticisms about things and when we look at the tradition of uh, principles before personalities, I often see that reviews where people, individuals, not the fellowships themselves in it, are the first ones to point the finger at other options and say, that's terrible. You're faking it. You're doing this. You're doing that. That's not real recovery. But when the criticisms are returned, uh, they respond incredibly negatively. <laughs> um, so it, there's a, a little a, a, a hypocrisy kind of happening again with people, not the fellowships, people that choose to go to the fellowships and continue and do well. I support wholeheartedly like you. I don't think they belong in treatment.
1: Yeah, I mean, I just think like, first of all, on every court that has ever ruled on the issue has said that it is a violation of people's First Amendment rights to um, be forced to go to 12 step because it is religious. Now, then you get, but it's spiritual, not religious. The problem is that God is throughout the steps. And if you surrender to a higher power that is a doorknob, that is really not going to restore you to sanity, I'm afraid. Mm -hmm. Um, You know, um, like, in fact, that is a rather non-sane thing to do. Um, I get that it works for some people. And I certainly get that there's people across um, religions who don't find the Christian elements problematic. But all of the courts that have ever ruled on it in the United States have ruled that it is religious. So no matter how many times you want to say it's spiritual, not religious, the steps themselves are a, you know, very deeply Christian pathway. Mm -hmm. And that's fine. Like, there's a lot of people who aren't Christian that can completely benefit from Christian ideas. And a lot of Jewish people, you know, or Buddhist people or Muslim people can totally benefit Um, without that overlay. But the problem is that when you go to a lot of meetings, there is a real lot of pressure to believe in a theistic God and a God that cares about you, which is fine in some religions, but it's not fine in other religions. And again, I think religion can be an enormous positive force for many people and in many people's lives. But We have the Constitution of the United States that says we don't have an established religion. And so that's one reason I think, you know, that there is a problem with centering a supposedly secular medical treatment on something that is not secular or medical. The second thing is you can get AA for free at virtually any church basement in this country or synagogue basement. Probably there's some mosques that have it as well, but it is freely available. If you want to learn the 12 steps, there are a million people in AA who are very happy to teach you them because, mm-hmm. in fact, the 12th step is about spreading the message.
0: Right.
1: The eighth tradition says we should not be paid for doing the 12th step. And yet most of these treatment centers in the United States are focused on teaching people that 12 steps are the one true way and that the only alternative is jails, institutions or death. Yeah. And that is a really terrible message because some people it does not work for. In fact, probably my mm-hmm. majority of people it does not work for. And so, you know, trying to fit everybody into this one size fits all thing is just not a good idea. I mean, to me, again, I would always recommend when people are early in recovery that they try all avenues of social support and 12 step is free it's readily available the most important slogan is take what you like and leave the rest um i can totally you know and i would never tell anybody don't go right Um, i would advise women particularly um, especially if they are trauma survivors, that there are some really hideous um, interpretations of the fourth step that they should avoid. Um, the idea that you should admit your part in having been sexually abused is frankly offensive um, and horrible and counter-therapeutic and all of those things. Um, you know, There's plenty of ways to do the fourth step that do not involve that, but it's written in the book. Um, and so, if you, um, you know, if you get with people who are just taking it literally, then you're going to end up having your trauma exas- exacerbated.
0: Mm-hmm. You know, just a couple of years ago, uh, the Cochrane review, uh, a tremendous that uh, they did a study and they looked at all the studies of of different the efficacy of different programming and things, and they did a review of the efficacy of of AA and twelve step facilitation in treatment. Uh, that's, and the results were celebrated by the 12-step community quite prematurely because well, especially it, essence, you... it said the efforts are as good and sometimes better than other opportunities, mostly psychotherapy. Um, but the reality is that AA and 12-step patients are the fact that they're effective as anything else means we're failing people because we're failing people all through the system. Um, and it doesn't say well, also it's the thing is that
1: there, there are deep problems with that Cochrane review. For one, it was done by a 12 step partisans. Um, I don't understand how that was allowed by the committees because they usually try to avoid that happening. Um, but the other problem is that if you look closely at the numbers, Um, so they claim that AA is superior on continuous abstinence. Um, and so like, okay, because they believe continuous abstinence is the measure of success, that's fine. But other things are equally good at reducing heavy drinking days and reducing days of drinking. Um, and so it, it it does not make sense that you could have, more continuous abstinence, without fewer um, days of heavy drinking. Now, it's possible that you would um, have like people who sort of go on binges, um, but the math doesn't add up. Basically, the math fundamentally, and, and there was a review published, uh, a sort of um, critique article published in a journal, sort of explaining that this both of these things cannot be true um so i also the other problem with with these studies is that they um there's a large self selection effect um that they claim to account for but i don't think they fully can
0: and i want to jump ahead here because we talked about the spiritual not religious but the uh, in the in the editorial you mentioned the taking of a moral inventory and uncovering defects of character uh, which brings up a couple of related items for me um the first sounds a lot like the antiquated treatment model, the treatment community, you know, therapeutic communities, sit in the corner, get yelled at, get broken down, and all that um, is quite the opposite of what we promote um, in terms of recovery-oriented, strengths-based. And it also brings back to a conversation I had with Dr. Mark Willenbring, where he said, and he said this with a straight face, dead serious, AA was created by white male sociopaths, to help other white male sociopaths because so few of the steps focus on the use of substances. And I I chuckled when he said that, he's like, I'm serious. But it also plays to what you just said about uh, women in the fourth step, Um, that it it, it can be- I mean,
1: I would not go, I have to say, I would not go as far as to say that I would not call them sociopaths. I would certainly say that they Mm. may be white men, some of whom have antisocial tendencies. Um, But I think like one of the terrible sort of side effects of the way 12-step has been interpreted by people is the idea that everybody with addiction is one step away from mugging their grandmother. Um, And in fact, the vast majority of people with addiction are nonviolent and would stay in withdrawal rather than be violent. Um, you know, especially since like, okay, so I'm going to mug a grandmother. I'm like five, one, Um, you know, (laughs) like, I mean, not that I would want to do such a thing. Um, you know, she might, she might go to the gym. Um, Uh, (laughs) and you know, I mean, it's, it's just like the reality is that people who have antisocial tendencies have antisocial tendencies before they pick up a drink or a drug and the, the addiction worsens them. If you don't have those tendencies, the uh, the odds of you, you know, um, becoming any kind of criminal other than perhaps a dealer, which to most capitalists seems like, well, you know, I'm selling something consensually to other people.
0: <laughs> I find it amusing because I understand Dr. willenbring's perspective. He likes to to stir the pot significantly and he's in the backyard of Hazelden. So he takes some secondary joy um uh, of, of that. And I won't mention our conversation offline that I had with him about Hazel and, and his opinion. Um, no, well, me I mean and he's p- a great guy. You know, he's talk. a
1: great guy. And I, I quote him and he really um has done an amazing amount of work um in the field. Um I just um while I may seem provocative, I att- I attempt to be um uh not extra provocative.
0: <laughs> I think it's inquisitive. Um, it, 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 you know, curiousness that, that provokes people to look at things from a different perspective. Um, and it can be, he tries to be provocative. There's no question about it. That's his thing. Um, jumping into NA's position on drug replacement therapy. Again, I, I shudder at that that statement itself. Um, the opinion of those that use methadone or bu- Norphine for their recovery, um, are not really clean and morally inferior somehow, um, it's clearly discriminatory uh, and, and and pushed on, like you said. Um, it's indirect; the direct opposite of the, uh, the, you know, the one requirement for membership, the desire to stop using. Um, isn't that combination that sets up an individual to be the subject of shaming clearly? Do you see it as hypocritical?
1: It, well, I just think it's deeply problematic. I understand where it comes from. Um, the idea is, and this is a mistaken idea, but it is, the idea is if you still have these evil substances, opioids, which methadone and buprenorphine both are, if they're still in your bloodstream, you are still actively addicted. And in fact, what you are is physically dependent. And mm-hmm. addiction and physically physical dependence are not the same thing. When NA was founded, they were believed to be the same thing. We now know differently. And I wanna explain this because it's really important. So um, dependence is needing something to function. Um, and so we're all dependent on food, for example. Um, uh, you know, Some people are dependent on insulin. Some people are dependent on opioids for pain. Um, that isn't a problem so long as the, um, the benefits of the substance outweigh the risks. Um, So addiction, in contrast, is compulsive drug use despite negative consequences. So it is, in fact, true when you put somebody on methadone or buprenorphine, you are literally replacing one drug with another, but you are not replacing one addiction with another. And that's what's important because addiction is always problematic because there's negative consequences. Dependence doesn't have to be problematic. And Mm -hmm. If you are taking the same dose at the same time every day and you have been in treatment and found that this is the right dose for you of methadone or buprenorphine, you will not be high. People think that like, oh, you're always high, like you would be if you were like substituting vodka for gin. (laughs) The thing is because opioids create complete tolerance to the intoxicating effects, unlike alcohol, because there's always some residual impairment. But because opioids are different in how they act on the brain, the idea that you're always high if you are on methadone or buprenorphine is simply false. And you can drive, and you can love, and you can work, and you can connect just like anybody else. Um, but people also have a misconception about this, because they like might go past a methadone clinic and see somebody like nodding out out front. That person is either on the wrong dose or more likely, is using additional substances on top. And the thing about methadone and buprenorphine is that if you are using additional substances on top, you are safer if you are on the methadone or buprenorphine than if you aren't. You are less likely, 50% less likely to die. And so, you know, when um, such people, would not be counted as sober mm-hmm. um, because they are actively using, um, but they are not. Um, they are not like not being helped either. Like there may be some cases where people are taking so much other stuff that you know it isn't helpful. But for the most part, um, if you maintain your tolerance, you are less likely to die of overdose. Mm-hmm. And so, keeping people on these medications. Um, as steadily as possible um, is really reducing the risk that they're going to die of overdose in a very, very, very dangerous environment.
0: You know, the medications are really helping the body get to a state of homeostasis. It's normalizing the brain function, and that's it. When somebody is on a stable dose, um, and I worked in an OTP for several years, uh, uh, quite a while ago, and I remember that when folks from residential programs would come in, the staff would say, "Oh." you know, Jane Doe or John Doe is nodding out of group. Their methadone is too high. And I'm like, well, hold on. Before I get the doctor involved, let's talk. Are they sleeping? Are they getting, are you giving them 200 milligrams of Seroquel an hour before group? You know, there could be, maybe the methadone is too high, but let's look at all of the other options first so that this person's best interest in it. And that what I was seeing is they, uh, you know, I don't know if, if folks in many residentials are as educated on how the medications work or that we have opioid receptors through our entire body because our body makes natural opioids. Um, I mean, there's so much involved. It's not as simple as, uh, but it's, it's methadone and buprenorphine are easy to point as the bad people. Uh, yeah.
1: In- and I mean, it's just like, it's really outrageous because, um, again, it can lead to, literally people dying Mm -hmm. um you know again there are many reasons why somebody might not want to be on one of these medications because frankly we make it an enormous pain in the butt to be on these medications and so you know you don't want your counselor having a say over whether you can go on a business trip or a vacation which unfortunately is often the case in methadone programs um So I get why people would absolutely prefer abstinence um, if um, if they can possibly do it. The thing is, in this environment where one slip can, you know, um, be deadly, um, it's really important that people are making the choice for themselves and that people know that there's a 50% less chance of dying if you stay on the meds. Again, it doesn't mean nobody should ever come off, but it just means people need to be informed and need to be in a good place to make their own decisions.
0: But if an individual chooses to stay on for however long they want, uh, that itself is a good decision for them.
1: No, absolutely. I mean, it's like, given the odds, it's the best decision. Mm-hmm. Um, again, individual circumstances will vary. But, you know, um, if we had a substance that, you know, reduced your risk of cancer by 50%, I think pretty much everybody would stay on it.
0: So from your point of view, do you see programs that kind of push the fellowships as treatment being more privately operated, in, 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 you know, no public funding, or are the majority publicly funded nonprofit organizations?
1: I am not sure about that right now. I mean, it certainly used to be the case that um, the publicly funded um, treatment organizations were either methadone or very tough therapeutic communities. And so those for a long time did not integrate 12-step until about the 80s. Um, So now it's kind of all a big mush. And so I don't know if you can state whether, um, you know, private um, or uh, nonprofits are doing more of this. I do think that there certainly is more marketing by for-profit organizations claiming that they offer multiple options when I don't think they actually do. Some probably do, but it's just like the whole system is a mess. Um, you know, it's, it's really, um, you know, we don't care about people with addiction as a society. And so we have left this incredibly often fraudulent system. You know, I mean, the amount of fraud in the addiction treatment area is just off the charts. Um, and the amount of non-evidence-based treatment, again, enormous, um, so it's it's also like you know when when I I quoted that um, NSAT survey that says sixty seven percent use the twelve steps, well. That survey, they also have something like 80% saying they use cognitive behavioral therapy, which I'm pretty sure is not true. I think they answer those surveys based on the buzzwords not ne- that they think are popular, not necessarily what the place really offers. Now, that's a very cynical view. And I'm sure there's some wonderful places that do nothing like that and are really doing great work. And I know for a fact that there are. Um, but it's just having seen the underside of this thing for so long. Um, I know that, um, you know, while you actually can believe self-reports from people with addiction, if they won't be punished for accurate self-reports, I think you need to like apply that to treatment providers who feel they may be punished for accurate self-reports of what they're doing. So um, need more data, basically.
0: When I was a clinical provider, I learned that the, the more I worked on a therapeutic relationship and did what I said, didn't make promises, it just was uh, the more truth I got because somebody wasn't afraid to share it because they, it was a burden. They needed help with something, but they didn't want to be punished for it. Uh, and I couldn't find any data anywhere to see private versus nonprofit. so that's why I asked. Um, I mean,
1: now apparently they have just redone NSATS and um combined the survey with the mental health survey, which is going to make it even less useful, unfortunately, because it it reduces the level of detail. Um, for example, they now say self-help groups, which doesn't tell you if it's 12 step or not. I'm hoping they will fix this, but um yeah, the data in this area is also problematic.
0: Uh, It's clear that research shows the strongest aspect of the fellowships are the peer support, one person helping another, one alcoholic. uh, And and we're seeing a growing peer movement in the recovery community, which is absolutely tremendous. Um, Do you have any concerns about the effectiveness of peers to support those whose recovery path is not the fellowships?
1: Um, I think that the organizations that are doing the training for peer recovery at least the trainings are really good on Mm. like saying that you shouldn't do that. Um, And given that in the past, the training said you absolutely should do that. You should tell them this is the only way. um, That is progress. Um, I do think that um, peers are enormously critical in recovery and that the best way to improve treatment is to train people with experience really well and pay them well. Um, because like a lot of the reason a lot of treatment is so lousy is that they hire people who are there because they're doing the 12th step and they are like happy to get paid for what they believe is God's work. Um, and they don't need to get paid that much because of that. And since they don't have much training, they are allowed to not get paid that much. So I think if we're going to require more of peers, which I think we should, we got to pay them better.
0: Absolutely. And
1: we need better, you know, I think, and also I have to say, the new recovery support, um, all paths kind of thing, um, I'm seeing some amazing stuff from people. Yeah. I'm seeing and, people, um, you know, really create programs that, for example, you know, you've got abstinence, 12-step meetings, and then around the corner, you've got a needle exchange. And if you need to go from one to the other, you can do that. Um, you know, And it's not about like, let's have a needle exchange in the middle of the meeting. <laughs> but um, it's also about um, let's make sure that people, wherever they are on their pathway, are as protected as possible.
0: And I, I think when you mentioned training, and that is important when I uh, think of John Schinholzer and the McShin Foundation. He says you can have re- you know recovery experience, but what you need is recovery expertise, which means knowing about more than your own way. And that is such a brilliant and simple way to start. Saying your path is valuable, however, you you have to know the others so that they can find value in their own you know find what there was valuable to them. And I just find that brilliant. And I'm saddened that he's leaving as as president of the Shind <laughs> Foundation. Um, do you have any ideas on how we can move SUD treatment into modern medicine? Does this fall on payers to, to demand it? Well,
1: I would hope so. I would really, you know, I don't understand why payers didn't do this years ago because they like they um, they always want to save money. <laughs> But of course, if they did it years ago, they would not be able to fund any treatment. And so um uh like you know, then they would have got called out for that and rightfully so. Um, I do think that there should be more audits of what people are actually getting and secret shopper and all of that, so that like, you know, are they actually getting CBT? If they are, that's great, you know. Um, are they actually getting like um, you know, DBT or all the other things that People say they are providing, Um, you know, let's find out that and let's find out what proportion of the time in treatment is spent teaching things like powerlessness and, um, you know, um, all kinds of, um, you know, stuff about the steps. Um, and I think it's absolutely fine for places to have meetings on site to recommend them, to talk to people about, you know, what it's about and what they may like or dislike and what may be good or not good. Um, I just don't think you should be um, basically spending your time in therapy groups indoctrinating people into believing in powerlessness or um into these kinds of things. I think therapy groups should really be about, what people want to talk about and not focused on people beating themselves up by saying how horrible they are so that they can be seen as taking their moral inventory. Um, you know, you should never be made to do a fourth step in treatment. That is just ridiculous. Um, you know,
0: group just, therapists would help. And that's just my own personally, being a, being a, a group worker from social work school. Um, you know what I studied that I see the ability to actually conduct a group as limited. They're often run as as meetings how are you well, there's that
1: and then there's there's also like you know i mean and i've heard that this still goes on you know they put you in a room with like a tv and you watch like chalk talks by father martin or something you know i think there's a lot less of that than there used to be um you know it really does not do anything to improve recovery um uh you know um i understand that certainly there needs to be mental downtime in treatment but for that just like let people read or watch what they want to watch um, uh you know and also just um you know, really, um, like you said, do groups as groups, not as, um, you know, uh, where you're going to have to, um, you know, talk about, well, today I'll talk about it. And today we're all going to talk about an incident where we were powerless or whatever, you know.
0: And and as we kind of wind down and, and jumping to something that we had mentioned uh, before we started recording is, you know, as we discussed this issue, I'm well aware of the strong negative response that it will elicit from certain individuals. In your opinion, because you get a lot of strong response, uh, where does that come from?
1: I think a lot of it comes from this idea that like, if 12-step isn't the way for everybody, then maybe it isn't the way for me either. And so therefore, my recovery is at risk from knowing about these other things. And so, you know, a lot of people believe, like, if I wasn't forced into it, um, I wouldn't have got better and that, you know, um, new ideas are threatening to a lot of people. And I do feel like, um, you know, 12-step can seem like geeky and awkward and weird. And a lot of people who really love it initially hated it. Mm -hmm. And so they feel like that that would have never happened if they weren't forced to go. I don't think that that's actually true, because I do think that, first of all, the way 12 Step started was by one person helping another and spreading Mm -hmm. the message individually. I think that is still the best way. And I do not, you know, attraction, not promotion and certainly not coercion. Um, you know, so, but I do get that, like, um, a lot of people feel like, well, wait a minute, if that person can like smoke pot, but not drink, why can't I, and that's going to upset the foundation of their entire life. And I do think that it is absolutely critical to say to somebody who, you know, is strongly 12 step that it works for them. Go for it. Like, don't let my Um, path Mm -hmm. to recovery, like be a criticism of yours. It isn't, this is just what happened to work for me. Like what happens to work for you may be different. And so I so I think like a lot of that rigidity is often, and is perhaps helpful in very early recovery where you're Mm -hmm. just clinging to something. But I think, you know, if you get a few years in you, you should be able to be more ecumenical and you should be able to understand that you know like for I mean I also I never understood the opposition to things like needle exchange or any of that kind of stuff because you know it's just like enabling people to stay alive is fundamentally important. We don't try to disable people in general um, and so um you know the idea that also that like you could keep somebody using longer um by like say providing free heroin. If you actually look at the data where they provide free heroin, people actually go into um, other more traditional treatments um, at the same rate that they do from the street. So the idea, like the whole concept is just wrong. Um, And the whole idea of hitting bottom, I mean, even in the 12-step literature, they have high bottoms and low bottoms because they recognize that this is a ridiculous concept. Because if the worst thing has to happen, first of all, a lot of people are going to be dead. But second of all, every time you relapse, you're going to have to have a new bottom. And so you could never tell what your actual bottom was till you were dead. Um, So it's just a narrative thing. It's not a um, scientific or, you know, medical thing about. And so I I do feel like if we can move, you know, move within the program and outside of it away from um, those kinds of ideas, then it will be a lot easier for people to accept multiple pathways. And really like, if your path is working, work it. Don't like be like, oh, well you're doing something different. I should do that. No, like that's just not like how it is.
0: Messages are powerful. I've been on the same SSRI for probably 25 years. I've switched to try something different, didn't work. So I go back and everything is fine. When I see these commercials, if you add this to your SSRI, I'm thinking maybe I add that. Wait a minute. Things are working. And then there's a study that SSRIs may not be all they're cracked up to be. And like, I don't care. I don't care if it's I believe it's working. It's working. I'm going to I'm good. <laughs> you know?
1: No, that's my I mean, and I've been on an SSRI as yeah. um, as well, as well. Butrin for a very, very like decades at this point yeah. also. And my philosophy is if it ain't broke, don't fix it. Uh, If it starts to get broke, then we'll deal with it. But, um, you know, I do think um, like, again, I don't think I'm a lesser person because I rely on a substance to um, have my brain work as well as possible. I just think that's human. We all do that. Like, I think you're drinking coffee (laughs) and, um, you know, it's just um, it's, you know, again, human beings have use substances and activities to alter their consciousness since before we evolved into humans. And, you know, what we need to do is manage these in the way that is healthiest for each person. Um, And that's going to be different for different people. Like it may well be the case that I take something that if you take it, it would make you feel numb and horrible, but it takes my incredible intensity down a notch which is where i need to be so your baseline matters and we don't know what other people's baseline is so we should just like let them be
0: and dennis miller wrote several probably 25 30 years ago in a book that if there were no substances at all in this world especially america people would hold their breath and run around in a circle till they saw god
1: Exactly. Because there's exactly. that
0: uh, seeking altered consciousness.
1: Well, I mean, you think of that horrible thing where teenagers like choke each other to like you know experience a high. Like, okay, smoking pot a lot safer than that. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> uh, you they know, don't go um, well
0: together either. Choking.
1: No, <laughs> no, no. Um. Uh, but like you know, yeah. Like you know, or you look at the little kid who runs in circles, or you look at the cat who takes catnip.
0: Coffee. Cat, you know, cigarettes, whatever. Else. Um, don't take my coffee away. That's the one, it's what I got. <laughs> you know?
1: Well, and also, like, I mean, the, it is very weird that like coffee and cigarettes are okay.
0: What, I, you I guess they consider them to be non mind altering, but all I know is that people who are cigarette smokers are always worried. Do I got enough for this? Do I got to do it? Just like with heroin. Hey, do I have a bag for the morning? You know, I, I can't use, I can only use a half a bag for to sleep because I got to take care of myself in the morning till I can get some more. It's Yeah. It's the same thing. And I'm that way with coffee. If I don't have coffee in the house, uh, you know, I'll make sure. Um, before we finish anything you'd like to add or tell our listeners or promote.
1: Um, No, I just think that um, again, it's just really important to, you know, actually have an open mind about multiple paths and that not to see somebody who's saying we shouldn't have 12 step in treatment as saying that, you know, we shouldn't, what, let me be clear. I am saying we should not pay for 12 step in treatment. Having access to it is a different thing. It shouldn't be the dominant mode, but that doesn't mean that I don't think that there's value in it for some people, nor should I, would i ever say for people oh you should stop that it's bad for you um you know it's about like helping more people to find a path that works for them and about you know um really understanding you know how addiction and recovery work and not just limiting it to say, well, this is the way I've been taught. And this is the only thing that could possibly be true. Like that might be true for you, but it might not be true for me. So we really need to um, just be more open to multiple paths and not get so upset that when somebody says even the most minor critical thing, um, you think that you know that they just um either don't know what they're talking about or are evil.
0: Well, thank you for spending time with us today. I really appreciate you uh, uh, making room in your schedule for us. Uh, it was great to meet you, and thanks again.
1: Thanks so much, and let me know when it I uh, goes up. Post right?
0: I absolutely <laughs> will. Um, that's going to do it for this episode. And although we really just scratched the surface of the issue, we hope this encourages you to investigate more and think critically about everything that relates to our work in this field, which includes this podcast, Blind Faith in Any Conventional Wisdom Hurts Those We Serve. And I'd like again to thank Maya for spending your time with us today and to borrow a line from my old high school's alma mater, let's learn to live and live to learn. We'll catch you all next time when we talk about prevention in the time of legal marijuana with subject matter expert Shannon Spurlock of JSI in Boston. Until next time, everybody.